The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It's May 13th, 2022, and there are 155 days to go until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camber Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Happy Friday the 13th. Happy Friday the 13th to you, uh, Ian, and all listeners of the Camber Report. What a spooky episode we have for you today, where NIMBY dreams may be dashed by the evil developers and it's it's the return of the giant blocks that threaten to block out the sky down broadway this time yes we of course are going to be talking about the broadway plan upcoming vote on city council but first let us remind you of patreon.com slash can report yes at patreon.com slash can report what can you do there matthew you can support citizen journalism in the city of vancouver and its environs there you can help make this show possible by supporting by a little or by a lot our efforts at citizen journalism and reporting in Vancouver. You may notice that the sound quality has improved from recent episodes as I have recently bought myself a brand spanking new pair of headphones uh, and microphone with which to record. It's super fancy looking. So proud of you. Yeah. So let us dive right in. What is happening to the Broadway plan? This is a plan that's years in the works. This predates the Vancouver plan. I'm pretty sure this started under Vision Vancouver. It's the redevelopment plan for the Broadway corridor, that main stretch of Vancouver that's often called the second downtown of Metrovan because it's the second most dense area of housing and jobs in the region and forms like such a foundation of the future of the region's development. This plan has slowly worked through years and years of consultation. Its staff have done a wonderful job trying to build consensus around this. I've seen reports that, you know, two thirds of people polled on it like it. It's good. It is widely supported, but there is a vocal minority, which we'll get to. And now council will have the chance on May 18th to debate what staff have brought forward, amend it, tear it to shreds if they want, kick it down the road as they are want to do, or hopefully adopt a vision for building where the SkyTrain will be going soon. Yes, going now. If you've ever tried to travel down Broadway recently, you will know that the SkyTrain is going in because it sucks to travel down Broadway. (laughs) Some highlights of the plan include 30,000 new homes over 30 years, a prioritization of market and below market rental and social housing around new transit hubs, the densification of surrounding neighborhoods, a bright supply of housing and efforts to address speculation and support equity in addition to protecting existing affordable housing despite what some people might say on the radio there's a lot of people speaking out in favor of this just in the past couple of weeks i've seen editorials from former city planner brent todarian who notes on his twitter thread he rarely writes about uh, local issues like this he usually doesn't step in i think Once again, we saw David Eby and George Heyman, local MLAs, sign up to speak in favor of this. Another 
notable intervention. And the Daily Hive published an editorial from the co-chairs of the city's renter advisory committee, Kit Souter and Tanya Webking. Those two names are actually quite interesting to see together. Souter had worked for A Better City Vancouver, though he left citing campaign differences in January. And Tanya is now running for COPE. So kind of ideological adversaries have come together to say, this is a good thing. Yes. And it, again, highlights the second axis of municipal politics, whether we want conservation or, and when we say conservation, we want to make it clear that we mean whether we want to let the NIMBYs win or we want a pro-development, pro-growth city council. Some of the opposition to this has been absolutely friggin' hilarious, particularly from Bill Thielman, a municipal gadfly and who lives on, on the Broadway corridor and whose children live on the Broadway corridor who are... And whose I grandchildren think, also live there, apparently. The, just to yes. really cement in the legacy. wealth. <laughs> also in the Thai, Patrick Condon wrote up another thing about seven amendments needed, one of which is just lots more consultation. He and another local architect also released renderings that I teased off the top that have been mocked pretty widely on Twitter of just... Lego blocks dropped from the sky. You mentioned hilarity. We're referencing an exchange he had with Stephen Quinn. It's about 10 minutes long. It, when I heard that Thielman was going on there and going to be yelling about this, I thought it was going to be too painful to listen to, but it's almost too hilarious because Stephen Quinn says things like, I don't think these renderings are accurate. And Thielman tries to defend it, arguing, no, we had a real architect do them. And Quinn goes, no, I've covered <laughs> development for 20 years in the city. Buildings don't look like giant blocks. I would suggest that this is probably not an accurate depiction of anything, as the as you've posted. I mean, Vancouver simply doesn't build based, buildings based, like that. Based on what architectural background of yours, Stephen? Well, no, I'm just saying based on my experience covering development in the city for the past 21 years. Well, I, I just have to disagree. I'll go with the architect over the radio host. Uh, okay, but, but I mean, the, the fact is the city just doesn't build great big rectangles like that. No, this is a rendering, an architectural rendering Thank based you. on what the plan shows. Right. Okay. I just want to be clear that the form of development is not exactly something that the city of Vancouver would be likely to say yes to. Well, I, I disagree. I think that's exactly what they're looking at. It's like, well, I'll trust, I'll trust the architect instead of the radio host, Stephen. And it, it really goes to show how far the NIMBYs are willing to go in order to oppose development in this city because it is effectively creating a straw man. And I think that's a bit of a shameful way to go about uh, posing a plan. I, I think it's dishonest and disingenuous. Uh, and I, I think it doesn't really have a, a place in our municipal debate. However, there it is, sitting there like a giant turd in a punch bowl that nobody wanted. And Like, uh, I think... Like, the Vancouver Tenants Union has, has not come out for or against this plan, but they've raised... The kind of concerns you would expect that group to raise around, like, we don't trust that tenants will be protected enough around this, you know, and I think there are concerns around that, right? Those are the kind of concerns that if you look around the region, Burnaby saw a lot of displacement when Metro Town and Lowheat and these various developments went up and mm -hmm. relatively affordable rentals disappeared. Now, I don't know how relatively affordable Broadway actually is. Yeah despite these claims. Now, let, in fact, 
Thielman actually kind of gives away the game a little bit when he says, why do we have to be a center for growth? Why do people want to come to this city if it's so unaffordable? Why can't they go basically elsewhere? Credit to Quinn for pushing him on this and saying effectively, like, are you advocating we change our immigration strategies? And Thielman doesn't bite that bullet, but he gets close. Let me go on the record saying that if we were in fact going to build a massive bunch of beige boxes with no windows, uh, I would be opposed to it. Fair. They yeah. look hideous, but yeah, you can but make that's anything not look what's hideous. going in. That's not going, what's going in. We're going to put up the same curtain walled glass delights that we have across the city, you know, little, little glassy castles for people to live in the sky with. I am sitting in one right now and I have a delightful view of other glassy castles. They look fine. That doesn't mean there's not going to be amendments or challenges to this plan. Both Kennedy Stewart and Christine Boyle are already pitching their supporters to sign petitions, e-petitions, pretty much sign up for future uh, fundraising emails and campaign emails from them, but also asking you to speak at council, which might have more of an effect in favor of two amendments there each proposing. Kennedy Stewart first wants to make Vancouver have the strongest tenant protections in Canada, something that I've seen Burnaby claim to have, and they're on par. You could argue Burnaby throws in a few thousand, few hundred bucks or whatever when you get dislocated. Kennedy wants roughly the same kind of things. Right now in the plan, and this has led to some confusion because the Stewart campaign's press release both included the bullets of the current plan, which actually sound pretty good, and then tried to say, and we need to do this. So currently in the plan, if you are in a development or in a house, a condo, apartment, that you get kicked out as a renter, the city will pay your relocation, and wherever you end up, they will top up your rent, cover the difference between your current rent and what you end up having to pay. So you will basically keep at the same rent until a new unit is available. You have the first refusal to return to a new development, so you can go to one of the new developments when they're done, and you will be guaranteed to pay at 20% below CMHC citywide average rent. So you won't get the same rent necessarily, but you'll get a relatively good rent. Kennedy wants you to get go back at the same rent. Yeah, and that, I, I guess, laudable and perhaps a little unrealistic for the developers who are, are creating the spaces, but... I, I think this is a reasonable thing to at least propose before city council. One thing that I just want to make sure that he doesn't do is make the perfect the enemy of the good, right? Because if, if we allow for, allow for our politicians to debate this away, to, to take this good plan and, uh, based on some, what is effectively electioneering, tear it up, I, I will be furious. I will be absolutely apoplectic. It sounds like Stewart is largely in support of the plan, but we won't know until the votes come down. Boyle's amendment, and one city is asking for support for this, is to amend the plan to, quote, reallocate more road space to non-private vehicle uses, including AAA, safe, active transportation lanes, public plazas and green space, and universally accessible sidewalks. In other words, they endorse the plan, but they think there should be a few more bike lanes and parks, which... Sure. Cool. Good. Sounds sounds lovely. It doesn't sound like Boyle is about to vote against it. Overall, I think the plan has got a pretty good chance of going through. We saw a recent test with the redevelopment of 
uh, tower on Granville and Broadway, which passed with, I think, only Hardwick and Swanson voting against it for the usual concerns they would cite around affordability, gentrification, and so forth. This one, I think, might be a little more controversial because it is a larger amount of development and changes and planning. But I think, you know, the real test will be how the Greens come down on it, as well as, you know, does MDG support it or is she going to go a little bit wacky because it's an election year? There's yeah, still some she, unknowns. She is very much the wild card in all of this. I think we can count on councillors Hardwick and uh, Swanson to vote against. I, I think that Kirby Young and the rest uh, rest of the ex-NPA folks are, are probably pretty good vets. Uh, They're ABCers now. Oh, yes, they good, very good. We have names um, for them. A different alphabet soup, specifically the first three letters, I suppose. But there we go. Uh, yeah, and I think Weeb is probably a pretty reliable vote. Here, it's Pete Fry that I'm most concerned about and the Genova. Uh, I have heard the speculation that Weeb might conflict himself out because he owns a business along Broadway. Oh, for the love. It's clear this is needed, right? The, <laughs> so stand up and say that you have a business and you do not believe that this is in conflict. Just, it's, it's an interest held by the person in common with others. It's anyway. clear this is needed, right? Vancouver Absolutely. Sun had a story out recently written by Laurie Colbert, who did just a wonderful service for people concerned about the kind of issues we talk about here. And th what Laurie did was went through every city who had been mandated by the province to write up a housing needs report and tally up how many houses do we all need. It turns out Vancouver needs a lot. According to Van the city of Vancouver's own report on this, we need 86,000 additional units right now, plus 50,000 over the next decade, possibly even another 20,000 beyond that to meet, quote, unmet needs. Region and that 20,000 would bring us up to what the Vancouver city plan itself would call for. So Vancouver's own plans say that we need about 70,000 homes per decade, plus an additional 86,000 homes just to get us started. Holy crap, we are behind the eight ball. Region-wide across the 12 cities that Colbert looked at, there's a deficit of over 250,000 homes that need to be built over the next five to 10 years. Surrey has a lot, ev everywhere needs to build a lot and get on it. These plans, it's it was one of those things I think we missed that the BC government did early as a way to kind of nudge cities into doing more, which was to be like, it's kind of like requiring a strata to do a depreciation report. It's like, just a reminder, if you don't address this, you're going to be running into a lot of trouble later. You're already in trouble, though. And now we just have the problem of mayors and councils being reticent to actually do what they need. Just like strata owners at the AGM going, oh, but I don't want to pay the special assessment. I've lived <laughs> in too many condo buildings. <laughs> Recapping something that we had on the last episode, uh... Closed-circuit TV cameras for the purpose of public safety and deterring and solving violent crime. A leading motion title, if there ever was one. But Melissa Gujanova's recent motion for uh, installing a surveillance state in Vancouver went down hard. Yeah, she managed to get Councillor Hardwick to second it, but then everyone voted against it. Mike Weeb and Sarah Kirby Young were not present for the vote. Nevertheless... I don't think they were going to be supporting it, given the opposition and outcry that came out in advance of this. So 
there's just one lone green square in the column of in favor with Councillor DeGenova, sadly not getting to watch everyone in the city all of the time. Gross. What a good thing that happened. Occasionally, council gets things right, like a stopped clock. They can occasionally be right uh, every once in a while. And they need to make some more decisions. I looked at the rest of the agenda for this upcoming week. Uh, there's the usual bevy of motions. There's a couple reports coming up on the climate emergency, and I'm not sure if anything in there is too substantive. But what I noticed was this Councillor Motion B5, which is a rare joint Mike Weeb, Melissa DiGenova motion, where I don't usually see them pairing up. But they want to keep council going. They're having so much fun. They want to have the right to keep working until the term officially ends, which would be November 7th, which is an interesting date. Yeah, it, it is an interesting date. And it was that if, if anyone remembers the brief glorious moment of hopefulness between last election and the uh, installation of the new council before everything very rapidly turned to garbage, there was a lot of, of hope in there. And this way, we'll be able to keep the hopeless feeling as council refuses to do anything good going through the election and right up into the installation of what statistically is going to be the same council. Like, to be clear, this is a fairly uncontroversial procedural motion to allow them to have a lame duck period. The argument is there is a lot of staff reports to come back because there have been a lot of council motions directing staff to do a lot of different things. And so they do actually need to have a few more meetings and this will facilitate that. I just found that interesting though. Even yes, if it's and, unlikely to get voted down. No, it, it's, it actually actually is a, a uh, pretty reasonable motion, and I think it's, it's going to sail through. What else sailed through was the Vancouver Police Board approving the expansion and extension of the Trespass Prevention Program pilot. It's going citywide, Matthew. Ah, oh, good lord. Were you aware of this program? I was not, actually, uh, up until reading about it in preparation for the episode, but this program saw 581 business owners and apartment building managers sign a contract that authorized police at any hour of the day to access their properties if an unwanted person had, for example, set up a place to sleep in the entranceway or was participating in activities like drug use, the program being free to participating businesses. Yeah, it operated from as a pilot from September 2020 to February 2022 in Chinatown, the downtown business district and the West End. The idea being that this way businesses could work call the police to get rid of the vagrants sleeping out front of their house, as it were, in their probably own frame. Critics have been pretty widespread for this. BC Civil Liberties Association, Pivot Legal Society, Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and many others pointing out that this really undermines a lot of the due process approaches we would normally have in law. Police are just given the authority to come and question and arrest people without a warrant. It removes the presumption of innocence that would usually apply to those accused of trespass. Uh, and even the police themselves note that they responded to 54 calls with this, but made no arrests or and gave no tickets and instead referred people to services, which begs the question of why did the police have to intervene in this situation? It really does. But the police are always going to be asking for more powers. That is just the nature of actually most government organizations and services, but the police have a particular I think responsibility to temper their requests because, well, they can be unjust. Well, and it really goes back to like, what is the police board even doing? Because the police board seems more an extension of 
the demands of the police rather than an oversight body. And this gets into some of the stuff I've talked about on Politicoast with the coming potential and the recommendations for reforming the Police Act. But this does highlight that the police boards aren't really serving the broader community. They're serving the police. The police. But in a nice uh, break from the usual copaganda, Ian Mulgrew in the Vancouver Sun had like an a column... It's not like an anti-policing column in any way, but it's like something that was such a pleasant surprise to read in the Vancouver Sun in a mainstream outlet where he just titles it, What's the Real Crime? Metro Vancouver Make-Believe Crisis About Public Safety Threats, where he just goes down through Statistics Canada stats showing that crime is down over time and that, you know, ideas of broken windows policing and hate wave manias might be overblown. Yeah, I think this is a pretty enlightening piece the the propaganda coming from police public relations has highlighted a terrifying rise in crime that is sweeping the uh, municipality and i think that that has been effectively proven to be bullshit yeah my one criticism of the column is he does kind of dismiss that there is still a problem in society with racism he kind of argues that, you know, the era of race riots are over while kind of ignoring the motorcade that just went and blockaded downtown Ottawa for a while was not exactly a ambivalent to the questions of race <laughs> event. I've seen some of that here as well. So I you wouldn't, dis I wouldn't dismiss that as much. from my balcony, you can Jeez. watch the gathering place of I mean, right now it's being occupied by Cirque du Soleil, but that was the gathering point for uh, our particular iteration of the, well, what is now called Rolling Thunder. So yeah, that caveat aside, I highly recommend the column and we'll include it in the show notes. In Mount Pleasant, the community that desperately wanted uh, a pool back is now seeing a pool petition countering the pool, uh, saying, not in my backyard, not this pool. No, thank you. I just, it's tiring sometimes. So the, the argument here is that you have this lovely park and it's the fine. city plan is to destroy green space and put in a pool that'll be, only be open a hundred days a year. It'll have environmental effects because of the concrete that needs to be used. It'll remove grass. Grass is not an ecologically neutral no. thing. No, it's generally harmful. I say as I have a backyard. <laughs> the pool itself is projected to cost 15 to $20 million. The original pool in that park closed in 2009. And it was really during the heat dome last year that people really started emphasizing like, hey, pools have a lot of community value. Like people would talk about them before that, but that really highlighted the value of public spaces that you can be colder in or cooler in. Not everyone can get to the beach. Like the beaches are a privilege, effectively. They are for everyone, but being able to get to them is not accessible to everyone. And Mount Pleasant is a highly dense neighborhood in uh, a area where uh, the closest of water is False Creek and you don't really want to go swimming in False Creek. It's not as bad as it once was. The whales seem to think so, but there is no beach at False Creek. So we need a pool there. I lived in that neighborhood during the heat dome and I would have appreciated the ability to go and splash around in the water. I instead filled my bathtub with cold water and sat in it for seven hours because, oh my God, 
what a terrible time that was. The city is accepting feedback on its draft capital plan. And if you want to say, put a pool in there, you have until May 22nd. Or if you don't want a pool and you want something else, you could also ask for that. But go add your voice to the city's capital plan. Moving along from pools to polls, the Vancouver District Labor Council is out with a new report on the state of the race for mayor of Vancouver. Yeah, this was initially reported on by Dan Fimano in the Vancouver Sun. This was a poll done by friend of the pod, Mario Canseco at Research Co. He didn't ask, you know, who would you vote for? He asked how like, which of the following people are you most likely to support? So you can't just directly compare this as an apples to apples poll, but it does give us a sense of who are the more likely candidates to get some support. It's more like he gave up people a ranked ballot when you'll have a first past the post kind of vote. Interestingly, though, well, let's start off on approval and disapproval of the mayor. Citywide, 55% support the mayor or approving of the performance, 11% strongly. So it's not Ooh. a like overwhelming love. 34% disapprove. 18% strongly. And, and I would say that I'm in the disapproval box of the mayor, though not in the strongly disapproved box of what the I, mayor. What I found hilarious is of those who voted for Kennedy Stewart in 2018, exactly 50% disapprove of his performance. <laughs> and yet many of them are going to vote for him again. Yeah, it kind of shows like it's the Ken Sim and Shauna Sylvester voters, that's how he broke it down in the poll, who are more likely to support him, but not as likely to continue to vote for him. So Kennedy Stewart has a angry voter base who has no better option, which is kind of the ideal option, I guess, in a single runoff. Yep. His support is strongest in downtown and the quote-unquote far east, whatever that means in this poll. East of, yeah. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what that means. Of commercial. Respondents were asked what they would prefer the outcome of council to be after the election. 44% want to see a coalition of two or more parties. 33% want to see a single party have a majority. 11% want chaos of no majority or coalition. <laughs> and 11% don't know. When asked, who are you most likely to support? 41% pick Kennedy as their top choice. 25% pick Ken Sim. Notably, 19% pick Colleen Hardwick and John Cooper and Mark Marison both got 8%. That is interesting and troubling because there is enough space in there for coalescing around either Ken Sim or more terrifyingly, Colleen Hardwick to beat Kennedy Stewart. If people really disapprove of Kennedy Stewart and decide that they want to coalesce around a single person and that person ends up calling her, beat Colleen Hardwick, we could see a Colleen Hardwick-led city. Yeah, I'm hearing more and more grumblings that team might not be just like a flash in the pan kind of spontaneous. Like we saw so many parties arise in the last election. This time it seems like all of these people who are very mad about the Jericho lands or about the Broadway plan are starting to come together with team to be the NIMBY party and to see how much of that has. What's also really notable here is John Cooper and the NPA are basically dead in the water. They have support from no one across the board. Friend of the pod and supporter Christopher Porter tweeted out on his account, CDN Veggie, a number of takeaways by adding up some of the support versus opposition. Ken Sims' support is strongest among 55-plus and households making over 100,000. Kennedy Stewart's support comes from middle-income voters and renters. And a lot of Shauna Sylvester's, 32%, are saying they would vote for Hardwick this round. Wow. 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 
Wow. That's bad. And it really makes you wonder who exactly was supporting Shauna Sylvester last time. But I suppose believing nothing, even in such a rigorous way as she did, was uh, a good way to build a, a broad coalition of people. I fra- tried to phrase this delicately on Twitter, and I'll try my best here. But I, like, I think what we saw in the outcome of the 2018 election, particularly at council, is there was a segment of voter, and I don't know how big it was, who was eager to vote for white women. They wanted women on council, and it generally tended to favor, I think there were more white women than women of color running in general, particularly among the majority slates, but we saw a lot of women beat their male counterparts on their slates, both in terms of overall votes and to get on, which suggests there was some boost to that. And I think Sylvester benefited a bit from that because Vancouver's never had a woman as mayor and it's far past time. And Sylvester was one of the options for that on the ballot and probably the most progressive. Maybe some of those are going to Hardwick. Certainly more than Wai Young. Yeah. I think the other theory I saw Justin McElroy tweet out is some people just vote on vibes and there are vibes here. Not necessarily the same ones, but uh, you know, if you didn't support Ken Sim or Kennedy Stewart in the last election, why would you this time? Indeed. The Marison campaign says that the new data showed a positive trajectory for him compared to the poll conducted last year by Abbott's data showing him at 1% support with the new poll showing Marishan as the top choice for 8%. He said, that's progress. Presumably adding silently Vancouver. I just love the painful self-awareness of this quote. Yeah. And I don't know if, if Mark were running for mayor in an election three years from now, there might be a a bit more of a chance, but as it stands, it's still a bit of a long shot, even though I personally am probably one of the people who would say that he is supporting Mark Marison right now as as things go as my ideal candidate whether I'll end up voting for Mark in the end is going to determine be determined rather much more by how polling looks at, at the uh, actual state of the race day on election day because I desperately do not want Colleen Hardwick to win Well, one of the people who could end up on council if Ken Sim and the A Better City Vancouver slate do well is Peter Meissner, who is the latest council candidate to be officially proclaimed for that party. Oh, ABC changed their logo, too, I just noticed on Twitter. Good for ABC. Graphic design. It actually says ABC. Before, it was a weird circle that made no sense. Peter Meissner is a... West End resident, former journalist, and he calls himself a passionate urbanist. He has also been a bit aggressive on Twitter recently about the crime wave and talking about concerns from that perspective. But otherwise, he joins the three incumbents on council as part of their slate. And I would have to assume we're expecting at least one or two more ABC candidates because presumably Ken Sim wants a majority if he does win. Yeah, and and I think that's reasonable after having worked with this council in various ways, their incumbent councillors must see the benefits of majoritarian rule. Also running for council, Fisher Vancouver, for some reason. They announced their slate in the past couple weeks. It was unclear to me because the theory I had been running on was that 
Vision was hoping to do something big. They don't, VDLC has explicitly said a couple times now they're not going to endorse them. So they don't have the labor vote to rely on as a guarantee. So they really need to make their own distinguishing brand. So my theory of what they would try to do is announce a fairly sizable slate, you know, enough that if they won, they would command a majority and then launch a major mayoral contestant, maybe Jody Wilson Raybould or someone of that stature who says, we're back, we're ready to take power. And instead, they've gone more of the whimper, crawl back, beg Vancouverites to forgive them. Here's four candidates for council, five for school board and two for parks. Maybe some of us deserve your vote. Specifically running for city council, Hone Bazagari, Leslie Bolt, Stuart McKinnon, and Sean Roy for school board. Steve Cardwell, Aaron Leung, Kira MacArthur, Hillary Thompson, and Alan Wong. For Park Board, Carla Frankel and John Irwin. Those include those two incumbents, Alan Wong and John Irwin, uh, for Park Board and School Board, respectively. And Stuart McKinnon is former Irrespectively, rather, I said, I said the opposite <laughs> thing. There we go. Like, these are great people. Looking at their bios, this is a talented group, and I think they would all bring a lot to their respective positions. It's just... Why not run with someone else? Yeah, does Vision have the momentum to come back and get anyone elected? I mean, if all of their school board trustees won, they would have a majority on school board. Otherwise, they're hoping to add some voice. I mean, it's been noted a lot of parties have had some success with the don't run the full slate, just kind of build up a couple candidates. Cope has done that and gotten uh, Gene Swanson on. There's a few other examples, but, you know. It's not an inspiring or show of strength slate. I mean, maybe it's more honest that way. Perhaps. Perhaps. Someone who is hoping to show strength, I think, is the new slate that's announced in New Westminster. Community First New Westminster, a new progressive electoral organization, and the first person to announce for who's seeking their mayoral nomination, who's probably going to be the only one, because I'm pretty sure he was pretty influential in founding this party, is Patrick Johnstone, current city councillor, and I believe listener of the podcast. He at least follows us on Twitter. Ah, very good. Well, we look forward to talking with you, Patrick, if you indeed win your nomination, I guess, and speaking with you about what you'd like to do in New Westminster. But yes, Patrick Johnstone is going to be running for the mayoral nomination of that party. He's been on council for two terms. And he's hoping to set out a positive, hopeful vision for the future. This is, of course, in response to Jonathan X. Cote, the two-term mayor of New Westminster, deciding that he is not going to be seeking re-election and stepping down at the end of his term. Yeah, Cote had a pretty big amount of influence across the region, particularly at Metro Vancouver board and on TransLink's direction. So big shoes to fill there. And I think John Stone shares a similar progressive urbanist outlook. And, you know, he cares a lot about his city and the region. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he brings to the campaign there. Let's go to Surrey where <laughs> chaos continues. <laughs> They're coming to take me away. <laughs> but not from council because following passage of a new BC law that puts mayors and other councillors with pending charges on leave, Brenda Locke, who announced that she's running against Doug McCallan for mayor, moved a motion on May 9th saying, be it resolved that council be advised in a clear and unequivocal term the impact of the mayor being required to take a leave of absence from council's responsibilities in assuming the duties otherwise required of the mayor. Basically, Brenda Locke wanted to 
censure the mayor. Kind he is facing criminal charges for mischief, which we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly. He has decided not to step aside while he awaits trial and continue being mayor. Locks motion one, four to three, as McCallum was required to abstain and Alfred was absent. However, McCallum ruled it out of order as he'd been advised the law won't apply to him. It won't apply to him, and, and he is right in that. He did call for a special meeting on Thursday morning saying, shall the chair be sustained? Alfred was present, Jack Tendall and Steve Pettigrew were unavailable, and that meant that a slate of people, Laura Guerra, Allison Patton, Mandeep Nagra, and Doug Alfred voted in favor, Brenda Locke and Linda Annis voting against, McCallum winning that vote 4-2. to two. Yeah, so the... Doug McCallum's party pretty much has been voting as a slate and they still have like a narrow majority to win all of these votes five to four, despite mm -hmm. the fact people, I believe Brenda Locke was elected on his slate, but then flipped as it became clear Doug McCallum is uh, wildly unpredictable and you don't really want to be on his slate necessarily. <laughs> no. It's noted by the city solicitor that even if Hundile and Pettigrew were present at that vote and it would have been a tie four to four, the procedure would have been to have the chair be sustained to, I guess, continue the same situation. The status quo is preserved in the event of a tie. Yeah. Nevertheless, counselors are still mightily pissed at the way McCallum handled this by calling a special, <laughs> calling a special council meeting, giving no notice of this motion. Really? Usually One counselors might almost are, call it a sneaky dictatorship. It kind of has no substantive meaning in the end. It was just a chaotic shenanigans of procedures that I think we're both just fascinated by any time they happen. Yes, absolutely. Meanwhile, in news of actually stripping powers from the mayor, Langley Mayor Val Vanderbrook was censured and stripped of roles by council. Yeah, this is the city of Langley who released a press release a couple days ago noting that they'd voted to censure and sanction the mayor for, quote, conduct unbecoming of a member of city council in breach of the city's respectful workplace policy, the Workers' Compensation Act, and the Occupational Health and Safety Guidelines and Policies. The release went on to note that the mayor has now been removed of all of the positions she held on the various regional boards and is basically persona non grata for council until the election. It notes that investigation was done and the mayor had a chance to respond, all done in camera relating to unknown issues and now they have censured the mayor the mayor isn't saying much other than she wishes she could share the details of that she asked council to release the report but they declined so we don't know anything more than that intrigue speaking of bewildering and confusing decisions the village of Lytton was paid fifty thousand dollars by atco to film in the ruins of its town residents are outraged yeah this has been bubbling over the last few days atco released this little commercial showing like filming in the burnt out town and someone coming and planting a tree they say it's a fictional story meant to inspire i didn't fully get it because probably because i didn't watch either. the full thing but it got raised in question period in the provincial legislature as uh, liberal mla dan davies asked mike farnworth like how could atco be allowed to go and film this well the people of Lytton aren't allowed to go back to their houses yet farnworth noted that it was a decision by council not the province 
you know, he went on to say that people are allowed to go back to their properties, but there's still, you know, a lot to do to rebuild the town. That led me to go dig through the minutes of Lytton Council to see what I could find, because I thought I was going to have to FOI to find this. But no, it's right there on a report from the mayor from a March council meeting that he met with the president of ATCO and they said, hey, we'd like to come film in your town. We'll offer you a gift of $50,000. And the council of, there's only three yep. people on Lytton Council voted to approve it. And so they accepted $50,000. And there you go. That's how that came to pass. There. And I don't, like, it's not illegal. It's not necessarily wrong, but it is one of those questions that, like, residents, I think, deserve to ask their politicians. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that $50,000 might go towards doing $50,000 of good work, but it is a little ridiculous that $50,000 is being spent in this particular way, especially in such a publicly facing way, yeah. in a way that can be very well perceived as a slap in the face. Well, if you want to have a public facing way to make some money, but hopefully not get slapped in the face because that would be assault of election workers. <laughs> the city of Vancouver has put out a call for workers for election day and the lead up to election. They have a number of roles open from voting coordinator, registration clerk, alternate, alternate presiding election officer and the presiding election officer that you can make money on election day and advance voting. So uh, we will link to that in the show notes. So sign up if you are not going to be otherwise engaged on election day, for example, in electioneering, because that would be a conflict. Yeah, you can make, I think it's like a daily rate of 300 bucks as a voting clerk to 680 if you're the presiding election officer. So decent money. You also get paid for transportation and training. So I've heard a lot of people who do this and they enjoy it. It's a way to contribute to your democracy. But like you said, you got to be a nonpartisan kind of person, at least for that period. For that period, yes. I, I've worked elections before, and I, I find it very fulfilling. It's it's a good way to just sort of live right at the beating heart of democracy. So for those of you who won't be otherwise engaged, do sign up. It is a great way to contribute. The city does say you have to be vaccinated and you will have to wear a mask. So good on the city for that. And we end every episode of the Cambi Report with a Vancouverana, a little dive into Vancouver's history. And this is a edifice, a heritage building that has a dark history and a dark red background. The Livestock Building at Hastings Park. This is coming to us once again from Vancouver Exposed by Eve Lazarus, searching for the city's hidden history, or as I like to call it, the Vancouverana book. And this is a building at the Peony where you can see pig races and the petting zoo and big Bob, the bull, it is neglected a little more ran down. And there's always talk of renovation, seismic reinforcements and infrastructure upgrades. The building may be in need of a facelift, but the city holds far more than simply the remnants of uh, agricultural expositions and uh, the spectators there too. It was also a site of one of the darkest periods in BC's history, the internment of Japanese Canadians. 22,000 Japanese Canadians were interned during the Second World War, and from March to September 1942, more than 8,000 Japanese Canadians passed through Hastings Park on their way to internment camps. Families were separated by gender and age, and they were put in deplorable living conditions. The livestock building was originally erected in 1929, and it was only a couple of years later that the tragedy of Japanese internment happened within its walls. 
During the war, Japanese Canadian men and women were placed in animal stalls at the western end of the building. The eastern section holds housed a hospital, a kitchen, and dining area. One survivor of Japanese internment said, the whole place is impregnated by the smell of ancient manure and maggots. Every other day it is swept with dichlorate of lime or something, but you can't disguise horse smell, cow smell, sheep, pigs, and rabbits and goats. There are 10 showers for 1,500 women. The Pure Fruits building, built in 1931, was turned into a dormitory for teenage boys, while the Forum, uh, built in 1933, as the automotive and ice rink building housed men over 18. The Garden Auditorium, decided in 1939 as a dance hall, became the classroom for hundreds of Japanese-Canadian kids. All of these men, women, and children were declared enemy aliens and wrenched from their homes and sent to live here before being forcibly relocated to internment camps in places like BC's Slocan Valley. Everything they owned, houses, cars, and boats, was confiscated and sold for pennies on the dollar. So yeah, it's a, like, it's a formative part of Vancouver's history. It's a neat looking building with art deco style from the you know the 30s and 40s but a deep dark part of our history it's acknowledged with one of those little blue vancouver heritage foundation plaques on the side of it but you know it's one of those one of those buildings we need to keep in mind that reflects both the historic injustices committed in the city and kind of the ongoing work we need to do to make amends. And it, it, it harkens back to what we are, are talking about with with racism in the city. Like there is a, a ongoing problem with systemic racism and and you know, as we see in this place, anti-Asian Asian racism in Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver has a long and dark history of Asiatic exclusion riots, of, of internment, of people from both sides of the political divide supporting such measures. And uh, the forum, while it's a... Uh, heritage building and the site of maybe happy memories for some who enjoy agricultural expositions is uh, still a dark reminder of the injustices of the past. And on that somber note, uh, we come to an end of another episode of the Canby Report for the May 13th, 2022 edition of the Canby Report. I am Matthew Naylor for Lake and Boot Media. I am Ian Bushfield. Thank you very much for listening. 